And I think that's an important thing about the Green New Deal that people don't realize is that part of it is, like Zach said, recognizing that there very well could be a Pearl Harbor moment. One of the things that the Green New Deal is about is about doing that sort of planning that they did before so that when the moment comes, when the time comes, wherever that moment is, hopefully like right after the election, we're ready, right? We're ready and we're ready with solutions that have equity and justice at the center. And we're not only reactive, but we are actually active. What does rapper and comedian Lil Dicky have in common with House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? One's a white male entertainer, the other's a progressive politician of Puerto Rican descent. The answer? They're both leading a national conversation this week on climate change. So in this episode, we're going to cover the varying ways to communicate about climate and debate what's resonating at the mainstream level. Plus, we have an in-depth interview with the leaders of New Consensus, the policy group created to develop a plan around the concept of a Green New Deal. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media. I'm here in L.A. with Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Uh, I see you dressed up for our recording today with your Geico-sponsored T-shirt. It's a Nats shirt. Oh, it's a Nats t-shirt? I just see the Geico uh, logo there. (laughs) Still still my DC love. I love my Nats, but I love my LAFC too. I know. This I know. This I know. Speaking of DC, Shane Skelton, our Republican, is in the district today. Shane is a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific. He's also an energy advisor to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. Shane, how are things going on the East Coast? Good. Just landed here last night. The weather's actually beautiful. Usually when I come out here, I get a little nervous because we give up that California weather. But I was walking to the hill this morning. It was like 68 and sunny. Uh, walking with coffee. Fantastic. Tough Are you walking life. to the hill to do harm or good, Shane? Always good, Brandon. I do, I do no harm. First rule, Shane does no harm. <laughs> well, now that that's settled, let's get on with the show. In this episode, we're excited to bring you a sit-down interview with some of the leading architects of the Green New Deal, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, Damon Drummer, and Zach Exley of New Consensus. So stay tuned for that conversation. To kick things off, I want to talk about climate communications. We touched on this issue with Governor Schwarzenegger in last episode, but since then, a couple of climate change-related videos have been released and gone viral. First up, Earth a song and music video released last week by rapper and comedian Lil Dicky to celebrate Earth Day. Frankly, it's a wacky song. It features 30 or so celebrity guests singing in the voices of animals, places, and even viruses. So you hear Ariana Grande play a zebra, you have Miley Cyrus as an elephant, and Justin Bieber as a baboon talking about how his, quote, anus is huge. So there are some other weird lines like that that Lil Dicky must have just thought were hilarious, but honestly are a little, let's say, uncomfortable. And yet you find yourself giggling and singing along. Plus, it all drives to the end where Lil Dicky calls on listeners to learn more about tackling climate change. 
The song has now garnered at least 30 million views at the How time of my recording. You, I've rec- listened at like- least 25 times. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Because part of the initiative here is to raise money for some of the organizations that the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation works with. So it's all for a cause. Like Solutions Project. Like the Solutions Project, which Brandon is on the board for. Um, and there are others. And so I'm curious what you guys think. It doesn't seem related to climate politics at the outset, but I think there's a very strong takeaway here about how to communicate on climate change. And it relates back to our discussion with Arnold Schwarzenegger in last week's episode, where he talked about framing the discussion on pollution. What do you guys think of this tactic, using comedy, using celebrities, and using a song to drive to a greater cause, using Earth Day as as the news hook? Uh, Shane, I'm curious to go to you first, because I wonder if this even came up in your orbit. Did you see Earth drop a few days before Earth Day? Okay, so drop is a word that would also never come up in my orbit for the record. But um, <laughs> no, you know, I, I didn't see this video. I didn't hear this song until you provided it to me in preparation for this show, which is kind of interesting in its own right, right? Because when I when I listened to it, I thought and watched the video, it's interesting, it's captivating in certain ways, and most importantly to me, differently than the video we're going to talk about in a little bit, it does no harm. So as far as like a communications tool, I don't think this is the kind of video that's going to circulate among policymakers. I don't think it's going to circulate amongst, you know, people who maybe aren't inclined to to pursue climate policy and change their minds. I don't think it does. I don't think it moves the needle at all in that way. But the good thing about it is it's kind spirited. It, there's nothing about it that's mean spirited. It does no harm. It offends nobody. And so for those generations, for millennials or even younger kids, honestly, who don't really think about this stuff, I think what it does really well is it communicates a very complicated concept in sort of a fun and easily accessible way so that people who would be inclined to want to care about this and to want to be helpful will do that. It, it, it's what I would compare in politics to a turnout operation. You're not changing hearts and minds, uh, but you're going to create turnout. So interestingly, yeah, I, I don't think I ever would have heard of it if I didn't spend time with you guys. And I don't think it'll it'll it'll, you know, scratch the surface in sort of my world. But I do think uh, it does help inspire and incentivize younger people who who want to care about this, and maybe just don't know how or or haven't thought about it much in the past. So debatable whether no one was offended by it. But, you know, I take your point that it made an impact in, you know, driving dialogue. Brandon, what did, what did you think? It's cool to see a we are the world for climate, essentially. It made me feel a little old uh, because I didn't know who little Little Dicky was. I'm at the point in my life where like most of the bands that are new for me, I I, I find on Saturday Night Live, (laughs) which is really pathetic. I was wondering, do you think, how do you think they picked the animals? Like, do you think they were assigned animals or was (laughs) Katy Perry like, I get pony or I'm 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 not not doing this? Well, who picked HPV then? Because the virus is also in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a strange one to select. Uh, Maybe they drew straws. I have no idea. Shane, are you jealous that you don't have cool celebrities like we do? So does this particular video make me jealous? Of course not. But the celebrities supporting the Democratic field, like, for example, I know you serve uh, on the Solutions Project board with a couple of the Avengers. I would kill to serve on any board or do anything with any Avengers or at least be near enough an Avenger to take a picture so I could show it to my kids. So in that regard, yes. But this video did not specifically make me jealous, if that's the question. What would be like the Republican version of this? Would it be like Kid Rock and Clint Eastwood, like, we want a wall, we want a wall. <laughs> like, what would it be, Shane? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if Kid Rock and Clint Eastwood made a song, it probably wouldn't be about a wall for what it's worth. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm and I'm guessing on some of these. I think Tom Selleck maybe is conservative. I think John Donnie Boyd. Wahlberg has campaigned for Republicans in the past. Uh, but I don't know. There's not a laundry list of celebrities for sure lining up behind Republicans and, and Republican causes. Though, again, I don't think climate's a Democratic cause. And I think even framing it that way is dangerous. I think it's just a, a, an environmental cause that we should all support. Yeah, I actually don't think these celebrities involved with the Earth song meant it to be a political statement per se. It was just about raising awareness of the issue, having some fun with it, and driving ultimately to some organizations that are doing work on the ground. It wasn't meant to be political. Uh, obviously, we we bring it into that sphere for our conversation. But what I think is interesting is like, is this medium the best way to transfer the message? Is a a funny song the way to do this and part of me is like it sucks that we have to dumb things down to get it even on the radar and then the other part of me is like well this is the way to break in in a world where there's so much competing for people's attentions from the latest snapchat challenge to the Mueller report there's just a lot vying for people's minds and so sometimes you have to do something totally outrageous even to get noticed so I do think the song succeeded in that you know, 30 million views means something. And I, what I took away from our discussion with Arnold, one thing I agree with him on is we need to meet people where they are. And there's a lot of young people on YouTube and who, you know, know who Lil Dicky is and all of these different um, entertainers. So yeah. I think it's a good thing. However, there was a Pitchfork review that was pretty scathing that came out in recent days, and it said, The terrible song has this very specific canned quality to it, as if everyone was committing to this half-baked bit under the threat of blackmail. Ouch. I mean, regardless of what the reviews say, it's not a good song, like, at all, of course. But what it's really about is communicating to a certain demographic. This isn't going to bring in new demographics, but it probably communicates pretty well to the demographic it's targeted at. Yeah, and here's actually where I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine who runs this Instagram page called Climbing Change. And it is hilarious, I think. And he's found a way to make climate change and climate science and some of the latest climate news palatable and funny and, and using a medium that's already very popular. So anyway, check out Climbing Change, Climbing Change on Instagram. So speaking of climate communications, I want to bring up another video that came out in recent days. It was produced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, along with the news site The Intercept. And it did an amazing job of breaking down the vision behind the Green New Deal, which is something we're going to talk about in more detail with the leaders of New Consensus in just a moment. But I wanted to hear from, from you guys what you thought of this video. It uses illustrations and the voice of Representative Ocasio-Cortez to walk you through what she is envisioning. It talks about creating a decade of the Green New Deal. It talks about swinging for the fences. It brings in how Medicare for All uh, fits into the vision. It talks about dignified living wages. She goes into the future and describes an AmeriCorps for climate and what this one woman would, would be doing if she worked for that organization. And ultimately, the message was to close your eyes and imagine the world you could create if you just allow yourself to do it. Here's a clip. Those were years of massive change, and not all of it was good. When Hurricane Sheldon hit Southern Florida, parts of Miami went underwater for the last time. But as we battled the floods, fires, and droughts, we knew how lucky we were to have started acting when we did. And we didn't just change the infrastructure, we changed how we did things. We became a society that was not only modern and wealthy, but dignified and humane too. 
By committing to universal rights like health care and meaningful work for all, we stop being so scared of the future. We stop being scared of each other. And we found our shared purpose. Brandon, what did you think of this video? Do you think that this is something that's going to reach outside of AOC's existing supporters? Or do you think this is going to be more of a rallying cry for the base? What was your takeaway from this video? I think it's brilliant and it's so necessary because we need to do our storytelling better. That's what people are attracted to is is narrative and story. And the Republicans do a fantastic job of this, a better job of it, I think, than we do. Dave Roberts has a new piece out about how Fox News has united the right against the Green New Deal. And what it shows is that, you know, Fox News is essentially talking about AOC and the Green New Deal 75 times a day. But the the left version of media does not do that. There's high intensity, um, you know, backlash against the Green New Deal from Fox viewers. They do a very good job of, like, picking a policy and then, you know, waging a propaganda war against it on Fox and then weaponizing it on Facebook. And what we need to do on our side is the type of stuff that AOC is doing, is doing storytelling that shows people what can, what can the Green New Deal mean for them. And I think she did a great job with that video. Shane? Yeah, so I'll start with the one nice thing I have to say, and that's that um, when I was trying to watch this, my son was sitting next to me, and then I like could not get him away from me because he wanted more so badly. So clearly it was colorful, and you know it sounded good, and it was engaging, and he loved it, so he was really excited about that. Um, I personally really, really disliked it, probably for all the reasons that Brandon said that he liked it. I thought it did, it did do, it was a great storytelling mechanism, but some of the feedback I got, just to give you a sense of like where, where my, you know, the people I associate with were at one, you know, was this is a bigger God complex than I've ever seen on a politician uh, before. This is someone taking a victory lap for a victory not yet achieved. And the victory lap itself is going to contribute to this victory never being achieved because it's offensive um, and it's condescending and all those things. I agree with that completely. I mean, I think. Wait, wait, wait. How is that a victory lap? When she's just telling what what the Green New Deal can mean. Well, victory. What do you mean by a victory lap? I mean, the the way that the way that I viewed it was the story was basically that this all happened, and and that's you know it's sort of a, a retroactive look back, right, at what happened. And the reality of it is, this stuff is really hard. Uh, it's really gritty. There's a lot of technical expertise involved. Um, I think it's fine to to show a positive outcome. We should always visualize positive outcomes, but it just seemed like. I don't know. I, I found it very condescending as if this is what's possible and we're just not doing it, whereas it, it's much more complicated uh, than she makes it sound. The other thing, too, is that I think a lot of this is about inclusivity, right? We want to make sure that we're including uh, every gender, every every race, every religion, every sort of social, uh, socioeconomic demographic in society. I don't think I saw a single white person in that entire video. Now, I don't take offense to that other than the fact that a lot of, I think, what we're hearing and seeing in middle America is things are changing so fast, and I don't know if there's a place for me. Now, what absolutely has to be true is there has to be a place for everyone. So I I, I, I get it, and I think it's inspiring to see people uh, from different backgrounds achieving, sort of working together to achieve the same thing. But I think intentionally creating a future where there is no space uh, for white people or white males is going to help drive the counter narrative that this is something that's not for me. This is something that that I'm not part of. This is a movement that wants to leave me behind. And I don't think that's helpful. I also think, you know, demonization and, and creating villains 
isn't necessary for every positive, optimistic story. So, for example, a lot of the video targets Exxon and Exxon New and makes them a supervillain. Now, the truth is, we're at a point in society where we have great technologies, we have information, and we can move away from oil. Right? We can create a future that's cleaner, uh, that has less pollution, that has less emissions. That's a great thing. That's a positive story. But I don't think we need to retroactively blame someone for providing the, the materials that allowed us to build the world's thriving economy. I mean, I don't look back at newspapers and think, man, journalists were awful people because they cut down trees just because I use the Internet now. Right? You, you don't have to hate the past to be excited about the future. And I don't like villainizing a sector of the economy, especially one that, while its time may have passed, was very critical to building, you know, the world's greatest, largest economy ever. Talk about a World War II mobilization effort. None of that would have been possible without fossil fuels. But Shane, they knew that they knew the harm that carbon was causing and they and they paid to muddy the science. I mean, is how is that not a villain? I mean, would you say the tobacco companies are not villains? So, so basically, what, what was the alternative option at the time? Our economy ran on petroleum. Now, if they knew that there were terrible, terrible, catastrophic things and, and were purposely hiding it, uh, then obviously that's not ideal. I don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's that cut and dry. That is What's, what some of the reporting but, seems but to I indicate, all, that they had some of the leading climate scientists on their own team warning them of, of the catastrophic potential of climate change. Well, look, I don't I don't know enough about the scientific data they had. If you guys do, I'm, I'm happy to learn about it. But I, what I will say is even if you're 100 percent right, even if she's 100 percent right, I just don't get how we build a positive, optimistic, forward looking future by villainizing people who provided great benefits in the past. Why not just tell a great story moving forward? How do Why you look backwards in that way? How do you square that with what Fox News is doing to AOC? Aren't they trying to create make her a villain? I don't, I don't work for Fox News. I don't defend Fox News. I'm not part of the Fox News team. I'm telling you that I think in order to achieve the things that we want to achieve jointly, we need to be positive. We need to be optimistic. We need to be creative. We need to be innovative. We need to work together. We need to lift each other up and not put each other down. And we need to make space for everyone. I don't speak for Fox News. I mean, what you just said is, I think, exactly what a lot of people will take away from this Intercept and AOC video. And I'm surprised that you don't really see that at all. Um, as to, you know, white people being in the video, I honestly didn't even remark on that one way or the other. But I'm sure part of this is to say that a lot of people who've never seen their faces in politics ever before can have a role in this. And I think that was obviously intentional to engage with so many Americans who feel like they've just been left out of this process. And about damn time there's been some content made for them because so much of it, either explicitly or not, is tailored to white um, white people. And so this video did, I think, do a great job of showing how everyone's part of this conversation. Now, is Medicare for all and a jobs guarantee controversial? Heck yeah. And so we don't really know what's going to happen with the policies suggested in this video. A decade of the Green New Deal may never come to be because Democrats might not actually get on board. So there's lots to discuss there. But did I think it was divisive? I don't I don't I don't see that. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. But again, I don't have any specific emotional connection to it. So I don't need to see white faces. Like, I'm glad that they're including all, all sorts of people from different backgrounds. What I'm saying is I'm trying to solve a problem. 
And that problem is climate change. And that problem requires buy-in from everyone. So if we know, if polling shows consistently that, that part of the reason we are where we are is that people in the Midwest, a lot of people feel like they're being left behind by whatever this future is, we should bend over backwards to make sure that all new faces are included and given a reason to be excited, and everyone else is included and given a reason to be excited. So I'm just not a fan of the politics of division, never will be, and I would like to see a future, you know, if we're going to make a video about a great future, a future that includes everyone and ensures the people who haven't been maybe given the same opportunities, you're going to get these opportunities. And the people who feel like they're being left behind, you're going to you're going to have opportunities as well. We're all doing this together. That's what I'm saying. It's not about white or not white. It's about inclusivity in general. That is what the video says, though. There's a whole piece where she talks about oil workers and using their expertise um, from the fossil fuel industry to to take down pipelines. She talks about engaging with people uh, who need to transition into new forms of work. And so again, this is a video by a politician, not a pop star. And so it has political content for sure. But I just don't think it had a negative intent. Well, you're saying it's tailored to bring people together. And what I'm telling you is it's not on my side. So it either it either wasn't or it was and it failed. But either way, it's not. <laughs> it's not doing that. It did not have the effect of inspiring everybody. And it's not going to be a bridge building tool. And that's where I commented on the Little Dicky video where it's not going to win over hearts and minds, I don't think. But there was nothing mean spirited about it, which I thought was endearing. Well, we'll have to leave it there to turn to our interview with New Consensus. <laughs> The Green New Deal has been all over the news, but what a lot of people don't realize is that there's still a lot of work going on behind the scenes. The Green New Deal is not set in stone, and that's what New Consensus is setting out to do, bringing together experts and grassroots leaders and others to form a more concrete plan around the Green New Deal vision. So to explain where the Green New Deal development stands right now, we sat down with Rihanna Gunn-Wright, a Rhodes Scholar, former policy advisor for Abdul El Said's 2018 gubernatorial campaign in Michigan, and current policy director for the New Consensus. We also spoke with Demond Drummer, a Chicago organizer and civic innovator who co-founded New Consensus and serves as its executive director. We also spoke with Zach Exley. He's a longtime Democratic operative who worked on Howard Dean, John Kerry, and Bernie Sanders campaigns, and is a co-founder of New Consensus as well as Justice Democrats. Brandon and I sat down with New Consensus last month in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, Shane couldn't be there. We were really lucky to get them all in one place and step out of the news cycle to hear what brought them together and what their vision is moving forward. I don't know if there's another place where Zach and Demond and Rihanna have all, um, you know, been together on a, on a podcast. So this is going to be a real treat for the listeners. I really enjoyed it. Julia had to cut it down from like a two-hour free-flowing discussion uh, to uh, something that is uh, much less. Uh, but it was one of my favorite, most interesting discussions I've ever had. To start things off, here's Demond explaining how they all met. I was... Um walking out of my, uh, the baby shower that my spouse and I were holding. Uh, we were expecting our daughter, who's now almost two years old. And my phone starts blowing up because apparently this group called Justice Democrats sent out a tweet uh, talking about they were drafting me to run for Congress in Illinois' first congressional district. Uh, fast forward, um, had a series of conversations with them. I was skeptical, <laughs> right? Very skeptical. Um, but I was very curious because uh, I thought they had incredible judgment, right? <laughs> So I said, well, these folks are really smart. Uh, 
Um, not sure what their political strategy is, but let's go see what's what's up. I attended what uh, apparently was the first convening of candidates that they were drafting to run for Congress. Included in that number, as five of us, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Cory Bush in Missouri, uh, myself and a few others. And, um, you know, in the documentary that came out, Knocked Down the House, Alexandria said that that was the meeting that she decided to commit to running for Congress in the Bronx. And um, in that meeting, although I did not commit to run for Congress, I became very interested in the conversations that we were having in that room. Uh, the big idea is to transform our economy, uh, to uh, save the planet, and really reassert the role of the public sector, our government, right? What we decide to do together and reimagine what our society can look like um, when we center equity and justice uh, with an idea for growing our economy, rebuilding our industrial capacity, and really doing what we need to do to solve the problems that we were uh, faced with. So I was really interested in those um, conversations and concerned that even in the room full of people who were, you know, so-called progressives, uh, there was a lot of neoliberal thinking. And uh, we wanted to develop policy that was grounded in something other than the neoliberal economic model. And I became very interested in that question. What does it mean to pursue um, that those ideas? What does it mean to create a, a worldview that was a constructive uh, alternative to neoliberalism, right? There are no shortage of critiques of the neoliberal model. But what are the constructive alternatives? What is a society and an economy look like when we're not grounded in neoliberalism, right? That I was not aware was like being popularly discussed. And then what are the policies that would come out of that? So uh, thought well, that a, would... that's an easy conversation to have over a first drink when you meet someone, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, Rihanna, when, when, when did you first meet DeMond and, and how did you guys know that you were in alignment on, on you know, this agenda? Um, well, we didn't. Um, I mean, I think we knew we were in broad alignment. We are in much tighter alignment now after six months of working together. So essentially, DeMond emailed me and was like, uh, I heard that you that you know i saw that your policy that you wrote on abdul uh i would love to have a call and talk about like new consensus so we had a call and damon opened well we were talking about background he was he said something like i've been following you since you became a Rhodes scholar from inglewood because damon lived uh, in the neighborhood, Inglewood, that I grew up in and organized there. Um, and flattery is the way to my heart. So I was like, oh, my God, okay. And so he, we were talking, and he actually asked me point blank. He was like, could you do for America what you did in Michigan? And I was like, yeah, if you pay me enough. That being, um, that being what exactly? What was, what was the mission? So in Michigan, we wrote 250 pages of policies across uh, 250 pages of policy across like 11 issue domains, including a single payer plan. And, um, and so, and it was all really rooted in a progressive, like a very progressive vision, anti-poverty, universal access, dignified work, et cetera. Um, and they were working, they had a one pager for the green new deal. And the idea was, would you come on and work on the green new deal? And so I actually I agreed to meet with them in Chicago to talk about it. And I actually was not sure if they were going to murder me or not. Not because they're like murderous people, but because there was like new, because it didn't have a website. And it was just like two dudes who were like, do you want to try to change the world? You're like, I, I can't go alone. No, but it was in Chicago. So my family knew where I was. And I was like, well, I don't show back up in a couple of days. Come find me. 
but they were like in the lobby and we met and i asked them like multiple times over our first like meeting which was like two days to sort of be like what is a green new deal how will we work together what would this process look like etc because uh, i was on a, on a contract uh what would this discrete project look like and i asked how many times did i ask you if you all were trying to murder me <laughs> over like <laughs> it was several times <laughs> Because I was just, like, not convinced. And also, these are, like, two dudes who were, like, also, like, trying to live out their values. So I remember it was something along the lines of, like, if you come on, like, we always pay at the top of the month. They're, like, asking me about what resources I needed. And usually people, walk, you know, they say they want inclusion. They say they want diversity. But they're not actually thinking about the ways that, like, they can help make your transition either into their employment or just your life easier. And they were, which made me incredibly suspicious. Mm -hmm. But also, like, okay, well, this is actually really thoughtful and let's engage. And then and then we started working together. Um, yeah, and here we are. Here we are, yeah. I guess, Zach, kind of clue us into when uh, you got involved with New Consensus, and I know Justice Democrats is part of this, and... And tell us why, why, what was the vision that you had here? I mean, so I, uh, so I was one of the co-founders of Brand New Congress, uh, which, and then Justice Democrats. And uh, I was on the Bernie campaign and a handful of us from the Bernie campaign uh, had this idea to try to run a block of candidates behind a big uh, economic transformation agenda and uh, when, so when Demond was talking about, uh, when, you know, there, there was an attempt at a discussion about economic policy and about this grand vision and that people weren't really getting it. So I was the one standing in front of the room trying to explain stuff <laughs> and not doing a very good job of it. And the, and the, you know, but the problem was, is like, like Demond was saying, there's, there's this big sort of, uh, mountain that you have to get over to be able to have a conversation about this stuff. And so, you know, Demond was watching me not get over that mountain and watching just sort of blank looks on a lot of faces, I think. And because, and, and actually, you know, we did sometimes do a really good job of, of getting through, getting, getting some of these big ideas across. And, but then like the candidates would go and like, they'd come back and they'd be like, but my brother-in-law, who's a banker, he says, and so it was, it was like, oh no, you know, <laughs> they'd, they'd, you know, it would all fall apart. So it was very difficult. And, um, and so, you know, so this was like, um, like long ago, like we, you know, we realized that there, that if this, if this idea to have a new generation of leaders come, a new generation of non-politician leaders come into power and actually really change stuff and like work towards this transformational uh, economic vision, that we were going to need a new, and we hate to call it a think tank, right? But we needed some new institution. We needed a guerrilla think tank, a organizing policy shop or something. We needed something to like put some stuff out there that, you know, because of the caps and the new Americas are definitely not doing it. And so there needs to be so something out there too. And so even before... The Center for American Progress? Yes. And uh, so this is how you get to yeah. the new consensus specifically? Yes. Uh, so we needed an institution, um, a research organization uh, that would write the plans, uh, that would communicate the vision, uh, communicate the economic worldview behind that vision and show that it is possible and really rooted in history and what we can do as a country. So tell us more about that history. What happened in World War II that gives you, you know, confidence that we can mobilize and, and solve this? 
for World War II, you know, there was this uh, existential threat uh, overseas, and we were able to build industrial capacity to build warplanes, munitions, and material, uh, industrial capacity that we did not have before we decided to have that industrial capacity to produce Right, because after World War One, we sort of demilitarized. That's right. Right? We forget that the military-industrial complex that is the like the leader on the planet for building military hardware uh, did not, did not exist before World War II. It was entirely created. It was created within a year, right? With massive federal investments. Uh, that's how this country moves, right? And so we're saying we can move that same way uh, in this moment because we have an existential threat that we're facing and we can address that threat in a way that rebuilds our economy. Yeah, I was going to say also World War II also marked a departure away from sort of towards a really public-private cooperative model. So something that people don't know about World War One was actually a lot of the um, sort of same industrial capacity was actually government-owned, government-operated. And there were some issues with that in terms of administration, but also with politics. So when World War II came around, they really wanted to say, how do we involve the private sector too? And also the scale and the scope is so much bigger. So we're going to need them. So how do we actually work together well? And I think the question that you asked about crisis is really interesting because there's all this new data coming out, polling, especially from the Yale Center on Climate, um, where you're finding that more and more people are seeing climate change as a threat, and more people are not only just seeing it as a threat, but are moving into seeing it as a very real, acute threat. And like the word they use in that uh, study is like alarmed in that polling. People, there's a larger percentage not just saying that climate is a crisis, but that they are alarmed by climate. But I do think it presents a real problem in the sense that's different than a war is that war is a very acute threat. And so people are like, I see that this will be a window in which we fight and we focus. And climate change is also an acute threat, but also long term. Right. And you're talking about effects that come, yes, within the decade, but also compound on one another. And also a future where like it's very difficult for humans to look a year down the road, much less 5, 10, 20. And so I think we're seeing a, a moment and part of what the Green New Deal, I think, is do is trying to do is move that sort of understanding into a much more immediate, urgent, acute understanding of climate change and sort of trying to move it from a, a threat, but a long-term sort of like uh, hard to, to touch and hard to like really wrap your mind around threat to a threat that's communicated in language that's not only urgent, but grounded in people's individual experience so that they can see and touch and understand more how climate change is actually affecting them and therefore connect why they should care. Because so long we've talked about climate change like polar bears and coral reefs, things that are very far from people that they don't interact with every day. Not this is why climate change is part of the reason why your kid has asthma like the fossil fuel industry, right? It's part of the reason why your grandmother got cancer. You didn't know that that power plant that you live next to was contributing to that, right? And so being able to tell people that the things that they're seeing not only are true and real, but that they're connected to something, this larger thing that's going on, and that can be fought also in very real terms that they can understand. It's been a long time now since... I was in college and reading my uh, World War II history. 
but there's in, in New Deal, but there's so many powerful stories in it. Like I was reading about, um, you know, FDR started the Civilian Conservation Corps and they hired a couple million people, the government, and they planted two billion trees. And uh, the number of tanks uh, and airplanes that we built so quickly, um, you know, to deal with that threat. Uh, how do we get that story out there? How do we educate people more that like this is doable? We have done this in the past. I mean, I think the way it has to happen is through a presidential campaign because, and that's the, you know, and, ho and right now, unbelievably, there's like eight or nine major candidates that have endorsed the Green New Deal. And that's how it happened around World War II. And it's like a lot of people don't like this, but the, but I think the reality in, in the U.S. and in our political system is that the way we make a big national decision is in a presidential election and then we decide by electing a president who then does stuff, who then carries it out. And, but you know, even then it was like with in, in world war two, like what we forget is that there were years uh, up until Pearl Harbor when America was against getting involved in the war. And when there was really widespread sentiment against getting in, into the war, no sense of urgency. But one interesting thing is that Roosevelt used Though prepared for war for several years, Roosevelt hired the president of GM. His name was William Knudsen, and he uh, he was a Danish immigrant who had never gone to college. You know, he worked his way up from the shop, and was the president of General Motors. He hired him. He made him a general. He gave him a plane, and he and for for several years he flew around the country, making investments. Congress didn't even wouldn't even give them any money to make these investments. He finagled it in all kinds of wacky ways and just made sure that the industries like the machine tool industry, which is the industry you need to make machines and to build factories that will make planes that, will, that made all those planes. They made, they made sure that they scaled up the capacity of the machine tool industry and a million other little examples of, you know, launching new industries. And, and like Rihanna said, it was, it was not a command and control government system. It was somebody who came from the private sector who understood industry and, uh, understood where who could make what and went around and using the market the government was a in this case the government was like a future customer it was like the government was just an organized in the same way that that a venture capitalist might go out and try to get a bunch of stuff to happen without a whole ton of money um, the government was saying hey look this is really going to come and if you invest now you're going to make tons of money and then so when that Pearl Harbor moment came and we're going to have that Pearl Harbor moment with climate right uh, we don't even, you know, it's terrible to speculate what it's going to be. But so once Pearl Harbor happened, Roosevelt, he got up and he made a speech where he committed the U.S. to a whole bunch of production targets. It was the weirdest speech any president's ever made because it had production targets for the economy of how many planes we were going to make, how many tanks we were going to make. And um, but, you know, up until this Pearl Harbor moment, the generals and the economists and business leaders were telling Roosevelt, like, no. Forget it. Like we're, we make three thousand planes a year. Next year, maybe we can make four thousand. Maybe we can make five thousand the next year if we really invest and try hard. And so, so Roosevelt, you know, did. There, there was still a bunch of political wrangling to get away with this. But when he gave this speech, he he said it was the arsenal of democracy speech. And he and he one of the things he said was we're going to make we need to make one hundred and eighty. He said we will make one hundred and eighty thousand planes. So all these economists and generals were like. He's gone mad. Um, but then, um, you know, 
so then they had to figure it out. And so they had to do extraordinary things. And it, it does, And a lot of people say, yeah, we just rolled up our sleeves and tried really hard, you know, because that's how the movies go, right? They just like, I'm going to just do it. But actually, no, there was a plan, a strategy to do things differently. And it's an amazing story um, that's told in like two books that are both called Arsenal of Democracy, where they, where the auto industry and the airplane industry, the government gave them both huge amount of money up front. And like a mon- amount of money that we would never, you know, that we'd all gasp at right now if you adjusted for inflation. Yeah, yeah exactly. TARP or, <laughs> right. That's true. Or two and a half dollar tax cut for the for the one percent. Right, right. So basically, it was a TARP amount size money. It was like half of TARP, and and but they gave the money to, they gave the money to the airline to oh, the aircraft industry. TARP being you know the bailout for the banks. Yes. So they gave they gave this money to the airline industry, the aircraft industry, and the auto industry, and they said you guys have to teach each other how to do your thing. And so, and it was really dramatic and really complicated and really fraught with conflict and errors. Um, but basically, they the the airplane industry and the auto industry got together and figured out how to mass produce airplanes. And that was the first time that anybody mass produced airplanes in the world. Bef- the problem, the reason they couldn't make so many airplanes is because it was a craft industry. So that's like when people say we'll never be able to make that many windmills, we'll never be able to make that many solar panels. Wind turbines. We we're we, yeah, wind turbines. We have to do it differently. We have to we have to figure out you know. But I I also think that Zach was talking about the private industry, but I think it's also important to realize that it was a real marriage between a private and public. So by the time he made that speech, they were several iterations into that plan right and they have been working on it and i think that's an important thing about the green new deal that people don't realize is that part of it is like zach said recognizing that there very well could be a pearl harbor moment and we've seen disaster capitalism right and we know what happens when emergencies happen and all of a sudden everyone's freaking out trying to figure it out and then especially in our current um system lobbyists all of a sudden sweep in and say i have this bill i we worked it out like it all makes sense and all of a sudden we have solutions on the table that aren't inclusive that don't think about community and and all these other things and so one of the things that the green new deal is about is about doing that sort of planning that they did before so that when the moment comes when the time comes wherever that moment is hopefully like right after the election we're ready Right. We're ready and we're ready with solutions that have equity and justice at the center. And we're not only reactive, but we are actually active. And then there's so many other cool things that they did, like part of figuring out how to build these things. There were government arsenals. So like in World War Two and New Deal, I think there's a strong thread of experimentation and the ways that the government sort of experiments to innovate, not just in technologies, but also in how do you put people to work, right? How do you get local communities to lead? A lot of WPA projects were locally led, right? Locally decided, locally defined. You're doing this all over the country, right? It's It was about sort of how do we try out new modes of supporting folks. One of the most daunting things I hear from people who even are aligned with the Green New Deal principles and the resolution language say you can't get this done as one big wholesale package. It has to come in pieces. Would you agree or disagree with that? Can you do the Green New Deal in chunks or does it literally have to be one piece of legislation? I I, I think that's uh, and I'm quoting somebody who um, is somebody who is. on the ground in New York doing some amazing work in, uh, in Buffalo, you know, these are work avoidance questions, you know, um, you know, we need a plan. Right? I love that. 
So we need a plan. So, you know, the legislation, you know, the politics of it, you know, that's how it works out is, is a different question. What we're working on a new consensus is the plan that will be released. You know, some of it will be executive order. Ideally, a lot of it will be like law, you know, passed through Congress. Um, but the point is we need a plan uh, to meet the crisis. We need a plan for the moment that we're in uh, and rebuild this economy and, uh, you know, save the planet. So that's what we're working on. And it will be legislation. And it won't be just be like one bill. It will be likely several bills. But, but it, it, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We need a plan that will be translated into legislation and law. And the thing is, the structure, whether it's one bill or multiple bills, like, that's a structural question. If you know what you're going to do, you can figure out how you want to structure the legislation. It likely will not be a gigantic omnibus bill. The New Deal was... I think hundreds of pieces of legislation, right? So you can certainly do it in pieces, right? And But I think like Damon said, that is a question that makes sense if you are, you know, wondering how it will pass or how you'll structure it, but it's definitely not the most important question, nor it's also one of the parts of this whole thing that's most malleable and most mutable. So why worry about it now? Like, we don't even know what would be in the bills. So <laughs> do we, my, one of my questions is, do we have the right structure to deal with it? I mean, do, you know, FDR announced the second bill of rights at one point, you know, do we need something like that? Do we've got this filibuster and all this stuff going on? Uh, can we solve it with the current structure? Do we have to make structural changes to address this? I would argue before the structural changes, we need uh, an imagination change. We need to recover some deleted history and remind the American public of what this country is capable of doing and draw from the boldest ideas from the past and infuse that legacy, uh, like leave out the racism, <laughs> leave out the sexism, <laughs> the racism, and bring in our best commitments legalism. to equity and justice and rebuild our entire economy and get the job done. So, you know, before we even get to the structure, we have to change uh, our imagination and our idea of what's possible. Yeah, I would also say, like, for structural change, too, like, personally, I think structural some structural reforms will be necessary. I totally agree with Daman. I also think that a lot of the reforms on the table are things that needed to happen anyway. Like we're talking about like reforming the ways that we do energy governance so that you can have a smart grid. That stuff needed to happen anyway, right? We know that our energy governance structures now are not great. They're really opaque. It's very difficult to deal with distributed energy, right? So a lot of the structural reforms that are coming up to, I think it's not fair to think of them as structural reforms that happen because of the Green New Deal, but rather structural reforms that we keep kicking down the fucking road. And now we're where we are. And the solutions, the reason we have to do structural reforms, the reason the solutions we get all the time, why are the solutions so drastic? It's because the problems are so fucking big. Go ask Mitch McConnell. Don't <laughs> well, ask that me. That, I think, is the structural <laughs> reform that people are uncomfortable with, and the word socialism comes up with flames around it because people are feel like you're going to get rid of capitalism. Where'd that come from? Well, address the, socialism. Why? Why? No, are, no, why we're are not people? Why are people bringing that into the conversation? Because, then? because they always do, Julia. Yeah. Everything that <laughs> yeah. Democrats propose is socialist. Obamacare was socialist, even though we were getting I, private health care. So we talked so about at the beginning like, talking about the neoliberal um, system and getting away from that way of thinking, and so that's where some people bring in the socialist world. No, there's, there's. Well, wait. First of all, I want to go back to the to Brandon's question that. Like the the way this actually gets passed is is a president and some good leaders in Congress 
talk to the American people about it. It's like, if you think, you know, if you were paying attention in 2003, uh, when Bush took us to war, he got on TV every other night. He stared America in the eyes and said, we're and lied. And, but he said, we're, he said, we're in, we're all going to die if we don't go and take down this guy in this country. And then Dick Cheney got on all the shows and said they have nukes and they, and it, and the American people weren't convinced. It took a long time. It took a lot of pressure, a lot of arguing. And the thing is, it's going to be really easy for a president that has the vision. And hopefully one out of all these people that are trying to run against Trump will have a vision. It's going to be really easy for a president uh, to convince America that they need to get a better job to do some work, to make their homes more comfortable, to get a cooler car, to go to work in a cleaner, safer factory, and uh, to save the planet. That's a really easy sell. And if one presidential candidate has the guts and the sense of adventure to do that, and it looks like at least several of them might actually this time around. And and so here's where the socialism comes in, is, is Trump's whole argument against these candidates is going to be socialism. And that's not a random thing. There's a place where, so I lived in the Midwest for most of the last decade. And if you turn on the radio anywhere, about half the places on the dial, you're going to run into talk radio, um, which something like 80 million Americans spend three hours a day listening to. And the only thing that these guys talk about on talk radio, on this right-wing talk radio, is how uh, is socialism and communism. And so Obamacare was communism. And they talk about this all day long. Now, Obamacare was actually Romney Care, which came out of the Cato Institute. So it was definitely not communism or socialism. Uh, and uh, but that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Democrats do. The 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 new Republican strategy, and you know, Trump is just going to go all the way with this. Is that it's socialism, and that's the only reason anybody's talking about socialism. So I'm totally hearing you. I'm pushing back just to connect the dots on when people hear this is a a big new way of thinking and then they hear we're going to get rid of some of the neoliberal ways of thinking putting trump aside what is the the vision that you're putting forward it's, it's capitalism but that's inclusive or what are the terms you use to describe it honestly we don't use a bunch of labels like that and that's not to be like oh, i don't do labels <laughs> um, i'm not that terrible honestly um but I think it's more that that's just not within our framework in the you know, um, because I think it's a mix of both. Like we're obviously talking about the role of private capital, the role of private industry, but we're also being very open about the fact that we are, this is a moment where we are trying very hard to renegotiate power relationships, right? Between the public and the private to give the public more power, not so that they run everything, but be, so they're equal partners because right now we deeply sideline the public sector, right? We're constantly cutting revenue, right? While also creating new demands because inequity, poverty creates new pressures. And, and at the same time, we're saying the public sector has no role in markets, no role in innovation. But when there's a market failure, we want you to come in. And when we when we destroy something, we want you to bail us out. And we're saying that that is not a power relationship that is functional, sustainable, or healthy that needs to change. We're also saying that the power relationships between workers and employers are not where it needs to be, right? Workers need more power. They need power reflected in their weight in higher wages. They need a better safety net. And so I think the issue, if what socialism now means for Republicans is any effort to better the collective, right? 
that's what socialism is to them. And in that case, or just people, or people to put people, billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're very open about like this is about equity, which means putting more power and more investment in communities and people, individuals that have been disinvested in or disempowered by our histories, by the New Deal histories, too, by the World War II histories and stepping into that and not only not doing that again, but undoing some of that. And so we're not going to shy away from that because people call us socialists because at the end of the day, we do care about the collective. And that is our vision, is a stronger collective and much more balanced uh, power relationships um, in the places where they need to be rebalanced and also less power for some entities that don't need as much power. We're talking about a fossil fuel industry that People talk about this now. It's like, well, can you take on the fossil fuel industry? Can the entire government of the United States take on the fossil fuel industry? That should never be a question. Can the government be taken out by a private industry? Are you kidding me? Right? The government that's supposed to shepherd, that creates the rules in which these entities are allowed to compete and to market and to make money can the entity that makes that rules be overrun by that industry? We don't need to be in a place in our history where we ever have to ask that fucking question again. The government that subsidizes that industry to the tune yeah. of hundreds of billions of dollars right. a year. Yeah. And it's like, okay, can you be taken out by ExxonMobil? I hope the fuck not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think while there's no one term, I think you're way of describing it there of you know the equity piece is an important one so i think it's helpful to take that step back and describe what it is you are talking about here the, the response to to conservatives yelling socialism should just be to laugh right like it's just silly and that and that's what you know and so and it's it's really a shame to see so many of the democratic candidates taking the bait on this and so a bunch of jour journalists have gone you know so quote unquote journalists have on tv have started asking the the candidates if they're capitalists and uh you know it's like it's Ah, it's just crazy. I don't know. Yeah, it's also, I wish, we have to talk about the definition of socialism because a lot of times the the way they're throwing around doesn't even match the definition. And it feels like no one has stopped to be like, Eisenhower's a socialist if you... Yeah, yeah like exactly. what is a socialist and yeah, what do you mean here? And like, because we don't ever define what a capitalist is, right? Like, So our Republican uh, co-host Shane is not here with us today. What? Hello, Shane. <laughs> we <laughs> missed you. Sorry. Republican. Uh, what do you guys see as the role for Republicans in this process? I don't know. Um, and that's for them to decide. I don't know. Uh, for me, what we do is nonpartisan, right? Climate change is, is coming. It doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. And so, like Damon said, it's on them to choose how they want to engage this issue, right? I think it would be wonderful if Republicans got on board. But the fact is what we are expressing is in direct opposition to the ideology of their party, right? And also to what conservatism generally means. Um, and more precisely, in direct opposition to the ideology of the people who are funding the candidates yeah, in that party. Yeah, definitely that. And so it's up to them, right, to figure out, Fine. If if you want to stay in that ideology and this is too far, I respect that. But within your ideology, what are the solutions and are those solutions actually going to solve the problem? Is that going to get us to an emissions target? And if it's not, it's not a solution. So stop putting it you, like we we have to engage with it on that level, too. I think I, I think that there's like actually Republicans 
should be, if it wasn't that everybody was so partisan, right, yeah. and divided by these cultures, Republicans would actually, like actual rank and file Republicans would actually be more into the Green New Deal than Democrats. And that's because the Green New Deal is all about making massive investments into the economy, building up the productive economy. Ton, tons of money is going to be going to entrepreneurs and big business and, you know, to build stuff again, to make stuff again, you know, to make America a very productive country again, <laughs> an efficient country again. And so Republicans would actually love that. Like when you talk to a lot of Democrats, especially when you talk to Democrats that are more on the left end of the spectrum, like, they often they'll be like, wait a second, why are you talking about factories? Don't we need less factories? Like, don't you know? And well, no, actually, we need, you know, this if we're going to make stuff to support, you know, 10 billion people on Earth, uh, actually, there's going to be a lot of factories. OK, sorry. But and 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 we need those factories to be clean. And so we you know, and if we can build a whole bunch of clean factories here and, you know, how one of the ways Trump won was running around the Rust Belt states in, you know, uh, stadium rally after stadium rally. He never did not say this. It was always part of his, and the media just didn't even cover it. And he would say, we need to, he said, the politicians dismantled your means of making a living, shipped it overseas, and left you with nothing. And he said, I'm going to rebuild your means of making a living. And he did not do that. He's not trying to do that. He doesn't care about that. But that's what the Green New Deal is all about. So there should be tons of Republicans. But, but because everything is so insanely partisan. Uh, the, the, the leadership of the Republican Party right now is very committed to not supporting anything that the Democrats are working on, even if it's, for example, their own health care plan. So, uh, you know, so I think, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, uh, you know, when and if Trump lo loses in 2020, um, that could lead to a real change in the Republican Party. And, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of good Republicans that want to do something about climate and want to do something about the economy. And if they could get out from under this neoliberal baggage, um, then they would they would be some of our best allies. And some of them, to be honest, have some some conservative folks have reached out and have been really useful in, in thinking particularly about the market side of things, because that's sort of at least at the moment where they're living when it comes to climate. And so I, I had a, um, a conversation with uh, someone from a conservative policy shop just last week. And obviously, our ideas about how to do this like don't align but it was a really productive conversation about what's the role of consumer choice and in, in energy and how how can that help push forward renewable you know uh better uptake of renewables and it was useful and so i do think that there's these areas of like useful cross-pollination i think that's what's interesting about the phase that you're in from the sounds of it is while there is a resolution out there, you're very much in sponge mode. You're, you're taking in all these ideas, and it sounds like you're open to having, you want to have those discussions, at least get all the ideas on the table. Yeah, for sure. And I want to quickly go back. You mentioned him on deleted history, and I feel like we have to touch on the fact that there's a lot of human lives in this country that have been deleted in a way that people don't recognize the the pain and other experiences that they've had um, along the way. Can you guys touch on how you're bringing in, you know, indigenous peoples, people's disabilities, minority groups of various kinds, women across the board and bringing them into this Green New Deal and into public policy in maybe a way they've never been before? You know, it's interesting. Um you know, we have an economy that operates on the assumption that there are disposable people and disposable places, right? 
And the opportunity that we have is that the scale of the crisis that we face uh, must be met with a solution that is at an appropriate and matched scale, uh, which requires that we cannot leave a single thing on the table in attacking that challenge. And so now we're seeing that the people that we've considered disposable have to be involved in our solution, that the places that we've considered disposable, we cannot afford to dispose. And so, and not afford in an economic sense, but just cannot, you know, we, we can't do this without everybody. Uh, second, it's just the right thing to do. And so uh, as we're crafting the Green New Deal, we're being very deliberate um, about uh, reaching out and bringing in the lived experience and the expertise of folks who are considered disposable under the you know regime of neoliberalism? Who are considered dis- and, and, and live in places that are considered you know, you know, disposable? It's interesting. Yeah, if you think about you know trying to address inequalities um, across the board, you got to think this is going to be resonating with a lot of Americans. Are you guys finding that? Are you hearing from people that yes, they're hearing what you're saying and they are identifying with it? Or is this like a lefty fringe movement, as some might think? Absolutely not. It's interesting. Every um, I find my inspiration uh, when I just like walk out the door and just talk to like people. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, it's like okay, yeah, this is, is it. People are ready. The polling is is high. I mean, it's polling at like eighty something percent, and of course, like it's still an idea that like is growing and people are becoming aware of. But Republicans is polling among over fifty, sixty percent with them too. The That's Republican why Fox base. News has to keep slamming it. Yeah, ninety one percent of Iowa caucus goers, of likely Iowa caucus goers, support the Green New Deal. Ninety one percent. That is higher than any current candidate running. There's also there's this thing that comes up a lot, which is, why are you rapping? And I get this from my liberal friends, you know, uh, all the time. Like, why are you wrapping up all of this inequality and justice stuff with the Green New Deal? So there's all the good reasons that uh, we just talked about, right, that are actually moral, really important, good reasons. But there's also this other reason. Like, you know, uh, the original New Deal... Um, had all this terrible racist stuff in it, right? It was structured in really, really bad ways for African-Americans, right, uh, among others. And the and the reason that, that it was like that is because Roosevelt had a constituency that he absolutely needed, that he thought he absolutely needed. There was probably another way to try it, um, which was uh, Southern white uh, senators and uh, representatives, right? And so... So thanks to the struggles of a whole lot of heroic people over the last many decades, uh, we live in a really different kind of democracy, a really better democracy where people are more represented than they were in the time of the New Deal. So if you want to get the new, if you want to do something about climate change, if you want to ask for a dramatic, radical, sweeping transformation of the of our industrial economy, guess what constituencies you need to win over, right? Working class people, people of color. Poor people who've been left out. These are people, women, women workers. These are all people that actually vote. And and uh, and so that means that we can save the planet while making life better for everybody in America. When you were saying women and people of color, it's not just that they vote. They're also been found to be more inclined to care about climate change or to have a higher base level interest in climate change. But these are also populations that are materially 
incredibly stressed and busy and also prevent it through voter suppression and all of these other things from voting. But that does also mean that like these are folks that could be flipped into climate voters if they understood how climate really matter because even without having the connections fully explained out they're already more inclined women are way more inclined than men to be concerned about climate change they also are more vulnerable to climate change people of color etc and actually the the group that's least likely to care is conservative white men which all has to do with power because i tell people if, if climate deniers were poor black people we would have dragged them along we wouldn't care so i've Two final questions, one for Rihanna and Demond, one for Zach. These will be kind of personal. So Rihanna and Demond, you're both from Chicago like me, so I know you're tough. But (laughs) my experience with challenging the system and trying to make bold change, um, you know, on the Obama campaign, we uh, didn't talk about this much, but, you know, we had campaign offices attacked with bricks and bad words. and, uh, you know, we had federal marshals and stuff that the, that the incumbents would use to, um, you know, mess with us. Are you ready for how hard this is going to be? Uh, are you scared? Uh, do you know what it takes to challenge the system and, like, uh, you know, be a target? And how do you feel about that? Uh, I mean, I can go first before Damon. Um, I don't know how it feels to be a target. And I think a lot of my life, uh, I think I felt fairly invisible. And so part of the, this process has been most disconcerting is becoming much more visible. Um, and I think often about what that will bring in terms of targeting. And I am scared and I don't think I understand how hard it will be but I also remember a conversation I had with my grandmother. This is really sappy. I'm going to go to my grandmother. But I did grow up with my grandmother. I came from a single, um, raised by a single mom and my grandma. And we were, I was back home after the Obama campaign. But And actually after I talked to you, Demond. And we were sitting like uh, in the back and I was telling her about my the work that I do. And my grandmother never actually thought I had a real job until recently because she always thought policy was kind of like school she was like so you're still in school i'm like no grandma i work she's like that's not a real job um but she finally thinks like i have a real job um and so we were talking and she was like you're doing the work that i always wanted to do but nobody would listen to me i didn't have a degree you know like my great-grandmother was a washerwoman in mississippi she was like no i try i knew that this system wasn't working but no one would listen. And now people will listen to you. So you're doing the work that I wanted to do. And I mean, I get scared, but I also know that like, I come from a long line of badass women, honestly. I mean, my grandmother didn't give up. She was like the beta Rosa Parks. Told me the story. She was like, yeah, white man asked me for a seat on the bus. When I was growing up in Mississippi, I said, no. I was like, what? She was like, I said, I was like, what happened? She was like, nothing. You moved to, you went somebody else. And I was like, weren't you scared? She was like, yeah, but I wasn't getting up. Um, and you know, my mom was the first like black woman class president 
at a high school that had race riots like every week. Like she talks about seeing like a black girl who's pregnant kicked in the stomach by a white dude. Like they evacuated school. She basically had a dude from the neighborhood be her bodyguard. She was elected the first class president and she stood in that. And that's not to say it'll be easy, but it's just a sense that like, I also have faith. I'm a Christian. You will die. This all will end at some point. You will have pain in your life. And so in some ways it feels like at least I get to choose this pain, right? And it's a fight that has to be fought. And so I didn't amass, I didn't go to school, I didn't amass all this social capital not to spend it or to just make more money or something for myself. The, you know, like I, my, where I am right now is completely not an accident of history, but like coming out of the hood to being where I am is way more like the Hunger Games than it needs to be. And so if some Republican attacks me or, you know, God forbid something happens to my family at the end of the day, I can live with that easier than knowing that I went through the world and did not make it better so that another kid had to go through the Hunger Games that I went through. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that ever. And so you know, I don't know how hard it would be. I'm scared all the time, but like, I don't really have a choice. It is what it is. And so, you know, you know, in, in my, you know, for my personal experience in this, um, uh, whatever threats or the challenge that we're facing uh, pales like dramatically pales in comparison with folks who are fighting for freedom and liberation across the world. Um, and, um, you know, so, you know, I, you know, I, I call these love taps, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, um, you know, these, these disagreements. So, um, yeah, I actually feel incredibly fortunate to be able to, uh, fight on this front. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely new. Um, and, um, I'm developing a thicker skin, you know, I'm incredibly sensitive. Uh, I don't know how many people know this. What? Uh, see, nobody knows this. What? Um, you know, when I get really quiet, see, that's you're the... always really quiet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I literally just connected. <laughs> but, um, but to be able to meet, uh, the brilliant people that were, being able to engage in this process, to be able to do something uh, that corrects some wrongs that have been done in the past, to be able to build trust with folks who have been actively marginalized and targeted and ignored, um, that's an incredible privilege and it takes a lot of grit, um, but I embrace it readily. It's also a privilege. So I, I um, it's, uh, I was almost in tears like many, many times uh, throughout um, some of our convenings uh, because it's just, it's just incredible to have folks working. We have a scientist, you know, somebody who's um, working on renewable energy uh, in, uh, you know, in a tribal context uh, and somebody who works in Buffalo, you know, New York, um, upgrading homes. You know, it's, 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 it's incredible work. And so... You know, it's, it's, it's definitely not easy, but I, I think this is, I mean, I'm having a blast. <laughs> uh, and, and any challenge pales in comparison with what my grandfather and father uh, had to go through in their careers. So, you know, I'm good. <laughs> so, Zach, 
for the two gray hairs. You can, our listeners can't see this, but we're old. Uh, so was at the convention in 2016, and they were playing these clips of these great, you know, Democratic speeches at the convention. It was, you know, Teddy Kennedy, 1980, Jesse Jackson, 1988, Obama, 04. And it just occurred to me, you know, I remember those speeches, and I was like, man, we've been talking about the same shit for a long time. Uh, do you feel like this moment right now is different than what we've had in the past? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really, it's really different. I think a few things just massively changed. And I mean, for, for like literally the last 30 years, I've been saying the same thing to everybody around me and starting about, you know, starting 10 years ago after 2008, uh, I started getting different reactions from a few people every now and then. And then, and then over the last few years, like, there's a whole new generation of people reacting in an entirely new way. And that, so I think in a way, like, uh, well, you know, I mean, like Bernie's Bernie, you know, the thing about Bernie is he gave the same stump speech for the last 40 years. Right. And then uh, he was given the same speech and then, uh, and then suddenly, you know, <laughs> and when he ran, you know, I didn't, you know, uh, I talked to some people from the campaign at the very beginning and I was like, nah, cause I'm from new England. I've known, I've been watching Bernie forever. And I was like, he's not going to take off. Like, it's just not going to happen, you know. And um, and I was wrong, you know. <laughs> and people people responded in a really new way. So, and you know, and I think it's because of a bunch of things. It's because 2008, and then and the lack of a real recovery. Because for the bottom 90% of of Americans, bottom economically bottom 90% of Americans really have seen almost no recovery. Like, look at the income numbers, you know. Uh, all of the all of the uh, gains in income in national income went to the top ten percent. That has changed a little bit over the last few years, but in general, and so so people really, you know, we had this terrible crisis that really hurt people, and for most people, there there really wasn't a recovery, and that uh, you know really changed people's consciousness. And it and I, I actually think there's something else going on, which is that there are all these experts that have also noticed and they're worried that they're, you know, they, they, they expected, you know, we spent trillions of dollars on stimulus and bailing out the banks and the corporations. And they were really expecting that, you know, according to their Keynesian economic theories, the economy should have snapped back and everything should have gone roaring again. You know, if you look at these, you know, these big companies that sit on trillions of dollars of pension funds and 401k plans, they're all freaking out because they don't have anywhere to invest that will earn, you know, a decent return that their customers are expecting um, risk-free. So everybody's getting more and more worried. Like what's, you know, and we, we have bubbles that are, that are blowing right now. What happens when those run out? There's sort of no policy. Um, there's, there's no policy solution that anybody has queued up. So this is kind of scaring a lot of the big experts and it's coming out in their books. And so, so over the last few years, like we've, you know, and in our work, like we, we have this whole new story we can tell, which, you know, which is that, look, it's, it's, we're not just, we're not on the fringe. The, the people that run the world economy and the most, you know, important economists and experts uh, looking at this stuff, they're freaked out. They know that there's a problem here. And so, and, and we're trying to put together a solution. 
Um, that's just talking about from the economic side, right? And then we also have this example of 2008. Like, yeah, it used to work to say, oh, we can't afford this, we can't afford that. But then 2008 happened. And, and you know, depending on who you talk to, we either mobilized 18 trillion or 29 trillion, it depends on how you count it. But we mobilized many, many trillions of dollars. So it's just, you just have no credibility when you say, no, we can't afford to make the investments required to avert the end of the world. You know, that just doesn't work anymore. So, um, and, and, you know, and so I think when you look at groups like, uh, Sunrise, you know, uh, young people with an entirely new perspective, and they're really interested in talking about how do we invest they're not just they're not just keeping in a, they're not just keeping in the ground people like the generation of environmentalists before them and by generations i'm talking about like a 7 year cycle here right so so the the generation before them was just like keep it in the ground we're going to protest until the people that run the economy keep it in the ground and um and and this new generation though is like we need to invest and and build an alternative and and in the in the complete like intellectual and logistical bankruptcy of the response to 2008, um, these young people don't have, they're, they're not, they don't have faith in the experts anymore. They're not like, we're going to protest and then you guys are going to figure out how to build a new economy. They're like, we're going to come up with a plan to build a new economy. Um, so yeah. I think it's interesting framing of like this balance between when it's a doom and gloom and there's definitely part of that involved, but also the fun stuff of we can actually make an economy that we want to see. And that's also hopeful in a way that I think people don't talk about the hopeful side, maybe enough just to finish up. And this, you know, we got to ask what is tactically next demand. So right now, new consensus is identifying expertise, aligning that expertise with the broad vision of the green new deal, the scale, scope and speed that we're calling for, and then mobilizing that expertise to write the plan so we are in the process of doing that, uh, and that is our immediate work. So that is our, not the, the, not, not the next step, but that is our step that we are currently in. And then ultimately driving to 2020, is that the goal, to have these policy solutions ready to go? Yes, uh, our goal is to have uh, the Green New Deal uh, fleshed out in enough detail to frame the conversation for 2020. So that's a early January, uh, January 2020, early 2020 uh, timeline for getting the most uh, detailed, inclusive, uh, inspiring and concrete plan that we can possibly do with the expertise at all levels that we need involved in that process uh, on our terms uh, to get it done. So we don't have time to wait. Um, and, and, and we believe the answers are out there. And the answers that aren't that aren't out there, we can definitely uh, uh, develop um, within that time, knowing that we're going to continue to iterate and work the plan and add more detail uh, over the course of 2020. And and our role is to just get these ideas and plans out there, right? We're not we don't lobby for this stuff. We're a nonprofit. We don't we're not uh, and we're nonpartisan. But we've got to get the we've our job is to get this stuff out there because, like Damon said. This way of thinking about restructuring the economy, it used to be commonplace in America, all around the world. It's still happening all around all around the world in a lot of countries, uh, but it's been deleted here. And so we're trying to undelete it. We're hitting the uh, undelete. <laughs> we're hitting control Z on the last 50 years of economic thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you all taking the time to sit here and go back in history, your personal history of how you all met and hearing that story and then obviously the historical element of what you're doing here. And so appreciate you doing that. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our podcast. 
Thanks as always for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you like to listen. So we hope that you'll do that. And also consider leaving us a review. It really is a great help. You can find us also on Twitter and Instagram at poly underscore climate. We're also on Facebook. Send us a note, comment on a post. We want to hear from you. This is meant to be a conversation. Thanks again. And until next time.